Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Ron Merrill. Well, thank you. Uh, If you've got your Bible, uh, go to Exodus, go to chapter 18 as we're making our way through slowly but surely uh, through the, the book of Exodus. Exodus 18. Awesome. You know, as we do so, I just uh, was wondering if you've ever had a moment in life where you got thrown into the deep end of the pool. You know, where it was just like, okay, there's no training, there's no help, uh, there's nothing. Here you go. You either learn to swim or you sink. That's kind of the way those scenarios tend to go. Some of you, you've had those at work. Some of you, if you, you remember having your first child, then that was definitely a sink or swim moment. Um, there's tons of those. Some of you have had something as a curveball hits you and it's now a lifelong sort of thing where you are thrown into the deep end of the pool, whether you like it or not, and that's where you are. Um, others of you, you know, wonder if you've ever had on-the-job training. That's, you know, most jobs are that way. You know, even if they have a training program, you go through that for just a little bit and you pick up what you do. But then there's always stuff that once you start, you just got to figure it out as you go. Uh, 20, 25 years ago, I had a weird job. I um, was a tour guide at Universal Studios Hollywood on that tram ride that they send you through the movie sets. And so uh, we had tons of training and an hour-long script to memorize, and I thought I was ready to, uh, to go. Except on the very first day then of work, after all this training, then they came and we're just about starting my very first tour. They said, okay, here's the deal. We send out trams every 90 seconds filled with people. And the tram makes its way through its hour-long tour of the back lots of Universal Studios. And along that journey, there's four or five places where you stop for three or four minutes to go through like the King Kong attraction or the earthquake attraction or the flood that comes down or whatever. And so now I'm not good at math, but I can do enough math to go, gosh, if they're sending a tram out every 90 seconds, but we're gonna stop three or four minutes at a time, multiple times throughout the deal, we're gonna get backlogged. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. We don't know where we're gonna stop. And then they said this, The big rule is you cannot stop talking as long as you're on the tour. Which means if you get into the courthouse square where they shot Back to the Future and a hundred other movies, and the tram line comes to a stop, you can't stop talking. And I'm like, oh no, like what are we gonna do? That's what they had, something called stalls that you just had to figure out how to work your way into. And so you'd come into the Back to the Future area, you'd exhaust every movie that you could remember that was shot in that place, and then you'd say, 
The buildings you see around you are called facades. Facade is a French word meaning false front. The top of these buildings are equipped with a sprinkler system in case of a need for weather in a particular movie. The sprinklers shoot water straight up into the air. As the water comes down, it appears to the camera's eye like rain. That's one of the many weather effects that we have here at Universal Studios. Other weather effects include, and then you'd go on and you could just bore the people to death for 10 or 15 minutes on the weather in in movies. Now you know I can stand here and blabber on like a complete moron without too much trouble. They also told us on the very first day, oh, oh, this was kind of big. Sometimes celebrities come to visit the park and they'll take the tram ride. Bunch of the celebrities love to be pointed out. The other celebrities hate to be pointed out. Which ones don't like it? You just gotta figure it out on your own, guess. (laughs) I can tell you this, George Clooney doesn't mind being pointed out at all, Rosie O'Donnell hates it. So just, if you ever bump into either of them, you'll know what to do. But it was just one of those things where you just gotta learn as you go, you learn as you pass a Michael Jackson video that they were shooting and people actually jumped off the tram to sprint after him in a crazed frenzy. What do you do? But what do you do when you're faced with really bad news? What do you do when you don't have all the answers that you need and now you're stuck? What do you do when you're in over your head? What do you do when the leadership that's required out of you is not something that you are ever really equipped with? Here's the really good news. God is so patient with me and you in this journey that we're going through. Most of your Christian life is gonna be learning on the job, learning as you go, trying to figure it out. He's given us a lot of principles that are helpful in his word, and then he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us himself. And, and that, that combination with his grace and his mercy and his patience, because he knows this is hard. He knows what you're going through and you're dealing with is something most of us are ill-equipped for. But he's with us. He's going to walk with us through it. And that's what we're seeing in Moses' life. As we've been going through this study of Exodus, it's really a glimpse of Moses' journey. He's not equipped for this. He's a human being, just like me and you. And yet, he's raised up in the prince of Egypt, educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. There's a little tussle. Things don't go right. Now he's out in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, through what none of us would probably choose for 40 years, God uses that season to equip him in a whole different manner. Then God speaks up and says, I'm going to use you to go back and be a deliverer. You're going to get the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And he's hesitant about it, as most of us would be. How am I going to know what to do? What am I going to say? How is this all going to work? Then God uses him through these miraculous means to rescue All the Israelites out of slavery get them through the Red Sea and on this journey to the the promised land. Now he's got the people on the other side of the Red Sea and he's leading probably a million and a half to three million people through the desert. 
And food is an issue. Water's an issue. Leadership in general is an issue. What does God want me to do is an issue. And he didn't get all of that info up front. And God's kind of meeting out little bits and pieces over time. That's the way it works in our life and in our journey. But I'll tell you this, in the midst of having all the answers when we don't have them, what God does is he builds trust, he builds relationship because we've got to learn to trust, learn to figure out what our job is when the screen's kind of blank or the answers aren't there and wait on him. All of that is really, really key. And enter this moment here in Exodus chapter 18. God's got them out of slavery. God's now provided manna. He's provided quail. He's provided water from a rock. And then we dive in here. I'm going to read a good significant portion here and then we'll wrap stuff up. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people, Israel, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom because Moses had said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land, and the other, Eliezer, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. So this is a bit of a family reunion's taking place. We don't know exactly when Moses and his wife and kids separated. Some of the scholars and commentators think it happened back after the bloody circumcision. Remember that wonderful moment from a few months back? Others think that maybe it was pre-plagues in Egypt or post-plagues or whatever. Maybe some, some think, and maybe more likely, they were together, but then um, Moses just sent Zipporah up ahead of the crowd to go get the father-in-law. Doesn't really matter. They were separated. Now they're united. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, becomes a key character in this chapter, along with Moses himself. Listen, verse 5. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped out at the mountain of God, which would either be Horeb or Sinai. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, of coming to you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had confronted them along the way and how the Lord rescued them. That would have been a good conversation. That would have been a nice meal and some amazing stories shared as they relay it onto Jethro. Look at his response, verse nine. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Did God do some good things for these people? Yes, 
But this had been after 400 years of slavery. How many times do you think the people doubted what's God up to? What's going on? Tons. But God did come through. The timing is just rarely what I would choose. Verse 10. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Polytheism, a belief in many gods, was super common. There seems some indication that Jethro would have had some faith, some understanding in Yahweh, the God, but surrounded by this belief of many other gods. But based on Moses' story, Jethro's faith levels up to say, okay, I get Yahweh, the one and only God is the God. Verse 12, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The families reunited, some stories shared, some relationships rekindled, some faith and heart sparked. All right, now next part, verse 13. Listen up. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning till evening. Anybody want that job? Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, what is this you're doing for them, he asked. What are you doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge? while all the people stand around you from morning until evening. Moses replied to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another, and I teach them God's statutes and laws. And so Moses got a big job. He is now leading this Israelite people, and people got problems. People got issues. And so they're going to their leader. What are we supposed to do with regard to God? Or I'm upset at this person, or I'm struggling with this, or I'm hungry, or I need, I need. People are needy, right? We're all needy. We're all super needy, especially you. Not so much, I'm just kidding. We're all really, really needy. And... God had appointed a leader to help facilitate some of their needs, but it's the father-in-law, Jethro, that realizes this isn't good. It's not good for you, and it's also not good for all these people. Because why? Because the people, it's obvious why it's unhealthy for Moses, but it's, it's unhealthy for the people because they've got legitimate problems and needs that seemingly only one human being can fix. And the longer that they have to wait in line, the worse and worse their problem's gonna get. Because this is an issue between them and their family or another person or whatever, and stuff festers, you know? None of us like to wait. We don't like to wait in line. I can't stand getting in the line at the grocery store 
And then you look two carts ahead of you and someone pulls out coupons and you're like, oh no, we're going to be here forever. Much less like if you're in the middle of a rough circumstance and you've got real life and death issues or heart issues or whatever, and now I just got to wait and wait and wait for the one guy that I think can help me. It's not good for either party. And that's what Jethro voices, verse 17. What you're doing is not good. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now, listen to me, Jethro says. Okay, Jethro now is going to give some advice. Jethro now is the world's first management consultant. Okay, and here's the advice. I'll give you some advice and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. So there is a set of things that Moses seems best equipped for. Then, verse 21, but you should select from all the people Able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet, place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load and they will bear it with you. Verse 23, if you do this and God so directs you, you'll be able to endure. And also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. That's such a, it's such a win-win. It's good wisdom. It's good advice. Now, just quick side note. This advice, as wise as it is, that we're going to see Moses actually receives and puts into place, this advice didn't come from God himself. This came from another human being that happened to be his father-in-law, and it happened to be wise and good counsel. But this right here isn't a prescription for all of history about how the church should be structured or things like this should be handled, this was appropriate advice at this time. God will use a number of things to help give us direction. If it's real clear for me and you about something to be obeyed, it'll be real clear. And then, like it or not, a whole bunch of stuff about life is left up to me and you. And he will use... Our wisdom, godly wisdom, he'll use other people who are wise to give us counsel. And for that season, that might be exactly what's needed. But in another season, that, might, that same principle might not be the thing. But here, it's really good advice. Moses listened to his father, verse 24 says, and did everything that he said. You know, this chapter's got it all. This chapter has really practical stuff. It's got character issue stuff that you and I can learn. But it's also got this big picture thing that I don't want us to miss. The practical stuff's good, the character stuff's good, but the big picture thing here we'll get to, I think is huge. 
One of the things when I was reading this that really blessed my heart so much was the humility that Moses had. You know, humility is such a key asset in life, but especially for followers of Jesus. Humility should be one of the biggest markers. And humility, you guys, you know this, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is probably more thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking uh, too high or too low of yourself. Because some of you, pride's an issue, and so humility means coming down. Others of you, you, you are beating yourself up constantly and you don't even believe or see yourself the same way that God sees you. And so your humility would become up to what God has said about you. But the humility displayed here by Moses is key for us to catch. I'm going somewhere with this, but look at, I mean, the, the humility of Moses with regard to how he treats his father-in-law, that's huge. It's huge because Moses at this point has been chosen by God. Moses at this point is heard directly from God. Moses at this point has rescued millions of people out of literal slavery. Moses at this point has had God work through him miraculously multiple times. Moses at this point is now in a position of power and prestige even though he's not acting like it. And he's just done and experienced some phenomenal stuff and he's basically a, an earthly king or, or president, position of power and yet what does he do when his father-in-law comes in? He bows down embraces his father-in-law. I'll tell you this right now, whatever age you are, it takes a lot of humility to respect people older than you. It takes a lot of humility to treat people who have walked some miles and some years that you haven't. Kids, this is big because respect and reverence for authorities or older people has totally gone out of our culture. About my generation is when it seemed to have started to diminish. And we naturally just don't respect people that have been around the block more. And we've lost something in the middle of that. There's some of you that have lived some years and been through some stuff that could teach us an awful lot if we'd humble ourselves and listen. It takes humility to respect people that especially like aren't even a part of your group, you know? Because in this particular case, Jethro isn't even a part of the Israelite group, family. He, he's a Midianite, he's an outsider. Yeah, he's family, but he's this old guy, and he's not the one hearing directly from God, is he? So why should I listen to you? Why should I respect you? Why should, that would be going through my heart and my mind, and yet, Moses in his humility says, I'm going to respect you just because you're a human being. I'm going to show reverence to you just because we're all equals, regardless of our position or our power or prestige. I love that in the humility of Moses. You also see the humility of Moses in a pretty huge way here because 
He's willing to change. Moses is willing to listen to advice and take some help. I'll tell you this also. Anytime you show me someone that's willing to accept someone else's help, I'll show you someone who's humble. Because it's not easy. We got this thing that we just want to do it ourselves. And yet, there's real humility when you say, hey, I'm in a leadership position. I should probably know all this. I should probably have figured this out. But honestly, what you just said, that's a good idea and we're going to do it your way. It takes humility to say that. And that's what Moses did. He expressed that humility to say, I'm willing to change. I don't care if you're an outsider. I don't care if you're older. I don't care if it's wise and smart. I'll receive that help. I'm not too important or need to fake like I'm too smart and know everything. I'll receive that. That's his humility coming through. And it's, I think it's the secret to his whole leadership. And it shows me a lot about his character, his humility. It's, it's big. If you remember just the chapter before, in chapter 17, Landon talked about it last week if you weren't here. Moses enlisted the help of some of his friends. They got slammed in battle And Moses' job, Moses' responsibility was to pray the way through the battle, right? Go up on top of the hill and adopt this posture of prayer, hold the staff in the hands, and all through the day, all through the night, keep praying. Well, that's tiring to hold that posture for too long. And so two of his friends, Aaron and her came alongside and propped him up and helped him continue to do what he was called to do. He asked for help right there. Then in this particular case, he's getting worn out and getting slammed. This is too much for him to do. And so he's humble enough to ask for help again. But in this time, it's a whole different ballgame. In the prayer moment, listen, he asked for help so that he could continue to work. In this chapter, he asks for help to be relieved of work so he could get back to the stuff that God had called him to do. Either way, it's support. But I would love right now for you to think about your life and think about the loads that you're carrying, the burdens that you're carrying, all the stuff that you gotta do all the stuff that you're responsible for, all the stuff maybe even that's weighing you down. Maybe it's a heart thing, maybe it's a work thing, maybe it's a kid thing, maybe it's a parent thing, maybe it's a relationship, whatever it is, think about all the loads, responsibilities, burdens that you carry right now. Now, ask yourself two questions. First question to ask about those burdens and yourself. Ask the question, Where do I just need support? Where do I just need help so that I can continue to do what God's called me to do? I'm not running away from it, but God's given me some responsibilities of just daily life or big work stuff or a family or whatever. I've got certain responsibilities. Where do you need to be humble enough to say, I could use some help? some people to come alongside me. And second question, 
where do I need to stop? De- <sighs> where do I need to stop pretending like all of this depends on me? If you're pretending like your God and the whole universe revolves around you, You need to have some humility to say, one, I need some help. But two, so that I can actually let go of a whole bunch of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing in the first place and get back to the stuff that God has been clear were my responsibility in the first place. And, And processing those questions can be big. If you're familiar at all with Galatians in the New Testament, if you get a chance, maybe go read it. But Galatians chapter 6, I think it's verse 2, says, Bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. There's something about the ethic of Christians. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens. And that's key. I hope you have people in your world that can bear burdens with you. But it's a little confusing because if you read just like three or four verses later in that same passage, it says, and each one of you is responsible for your own load. Thanks, Paul. Which is it? Do I need the help to carry the burdens or am I responsible for me? Well, there's a difference. And even in the Greek word between burden that's used there and load that's burned there, that's the answer. That's the difference. You and I are responsible to carry our own load. Think of the load as like a backpack. Every one of us can carry the backpack of our personal responsibilities. And God's intent was never that I carry your backpack and your backpack and your backpack and your backpack and your backpack. That's your job. But there are always moments in life that are not just a backpack. It's not just a load. It's a full-on burden. And the weight of those burdens is not something that you can candle alone. And when it is that level that's when the support needs to come in because the burden you're carrying is unwieldy. You still have some load to carry, but you've also hopefully then will have some support to carry the burden going forward that you were never meant to carry alone. But it comes back to humility. Because I'd venture that some of you in here are probably more prone to carry Every single burden, all by yourself, all the time. You won't let anybody help. And there's probably a dozen reasons for that. But you've got to stop and rethink that. Because it's not good for you. It wasn't good for Moses. It's not good for other people, too. That the, you, you don't even think about it. It affects And there might be some of you in here that are the opposite. It's, you're like, well, no, I need help with the load. I know it's just a backpack, but I need 14 people helping me. And then you're not being responsible for what God's given you, just you to do. 
because there's some strength that comes. God's there. He's not going to let you down, but he's just asking you to carry the load, not the burden. So that humility is big in Moses here. But I love it because Moses is just learning on the job while he's in the middle of it and struggling through it. But I told you, I think this is about a bigger picture and we wrap this up. Practical stuff, character stuff here, but the big picture here is not so much to me of the beauty of Moses' humility, but what this reminds me of Jesus' humility. Jesus Christ was incredibly humble. And you know, because we've talked about it, but this book of Exodus, it's two things. One, it's a historic account of how God got his people out of slavery and on the way to the promised land by using a rescuer, a deliverer, Moses. But it's also a macro picture of the story you and I are all living. And that is we were all stuck in slavery to sin under a horrible taskmaster. And were it not for God, sending his son Jesus as the rescuer to deliver us out of slavery and send us into a special relationship with God on the way to the promised land, we'd be lost. We'd be dead. And thank God for the humility of Jesus that came and got us. If you're familiar with Philippians 2, it says, Jesus, who was very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. Jesus is God, always been God, and he didn't use that to his own advantage. But Philippians 2, in your New Testament, in your Bible, goes on to say, but rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That humility is huge, that he would give up heaven to take on flesh. And then that he would be so humble, talk about power and prestige, being God, that then he would humble himself to come here not to be served, but to serve, that's our Jesus. He's the servant. But then he came for this mission to break the back on sin and death by going to the cross and then conquering sin and conquering death, raising from the dead three days later. I mean, that's huge. What an amazing God you and I have. And so he came and humbled himself. But you contrast that to Moses. And Moses' humility is just letting him love and serve people, which was great. Moses, what he was doing here was judging and bringing justice and bringing spiritual direction and bringing help and bringing hope. Those are all good things. He was their counselor. He was their advocate. He was their mediator. And yet, because he was only a human being, it wore him out. 
because he's not God. And so what a beautiful thing that Jesus comes and Jesus says, okay, I got the solution. I'll be your mediator. I'll be your advocate. I'll be your counselor. I'll be your help. I'll bring your justice. Because I became like one of you so I can empathize with you. But I'm also not just human. I am God Almighty. And so whatever you bring to Jesus, whatever you bring to him, will not wear him out. It won't. You can bring your complaints. You can bring your needs. You can bring your questions. You can bring your doubts. You keep talking to him. It's not going to wear him out. And that's why he came, to be our advocate. He's advocating for you right now. He's contending for you right now in ways that people can't. And now listen to me on this. I think what most of us are really longing for in our roller coaster journey, we are looking to people or stuff to fill what only a relationship with Jesus Christ can fill. And there's no amount of this friend or him or her or online this or amount of material possessions or accolades or whatever. None of that is going to do what only Jesus can do in your heart and in your soul. Now, you might have physical challenges uh, financially or uh, relationally or work or whatever. I get that. But at the core of you, there's a deep need for your value. There's a deep need for worth. There's a deep need for unconditional love and acceptance. There's a deep need for strength in here, not just in muscle. And there's no human being that can provide that for you. Only Jesus Christ. As a pastor, this passage relates to me because I have a heart for you. Landon has a heart for you. Everybody around here I would want to be there for you in anything that you needed. I can't. Landon can't. I am just a guy. But Jesus, your Jesus is your only hope. It's not in you, and it's not in someone else, it's not in something, it's in Him. I read this book that wrecked me a few years ago, four pastors called The Imperfect Pastor. And the quote in it that I still am stunned by was, you were never meant, speaking to pastors, to know everything, fix everything, or be everywhere all at once. That's God's job. That was such a relief. Because I don't think that's just a pastor problem, is it? A lot of us want to or feel like we should be. The one who fixes everything, is there constantly for everyone all the time, knows every answer about everything. It's not your job. That's God's job.
And so ultimately, the big picture about this, I mean, the link to Jesus is huge. If you read in Hebrews, again, in your New Testament, echoes all the way back to this in Exodus in the old. Listen, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Moses is just a guy. He's a good guy. He's a humble guy. He's a smart guy. He's an educated guy, but just a guy. And as much as we can look to Moses and learn from Moses, Moses couldn't do what we needed most, and that is die for the sins of the world on a cross and take our place. Moses couldn't raise from the dead because Moses isn't God, but Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is the answer. It's not me, it's not Landon, it's not him, it's not her, it's not your stuff, it's Jesus. It also takes humility to believe and trust that. And the stuff that you and I really need is not a change in our circumstances. What you and I really need is a savior who loves us anyway and keeps giving us grace. This broken down, messed up life that we live is gonna be over eventually soon. We make the most of it for his kingdom and his glory here and now. And then someday, thank God, game over. And Jesus is the one that's going to get us there. Don't give up. Don't do it. Humble yourself and hang in there. He'll keep learning you on the job, even through the rough. And so gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you modeled that. Thank you that you modeled so much endurance in your life here on earth. Jesus, that you went through horrible, horrible stuff. And if there wasn't a stop to your earthly suffering and challenges and the roller coaster, I don't know why I would expect an immediate one for me. But you endured it. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that you could sit down at the right hand of God. And so, Jesus, we thank you for being patient with us, but we also thank you that you're with us. 
pray for those that are not just have a heavy load today, but are in the middle of a season or a lifelong burden. Would you send them help? And then would you give us wisdom to know what our responsibility is so that we're not just looking to people to fix things that you are the one that can provide for. It's messy, it's tough, but thank you that you're with us, you're patient, your grace and mercy are here for all these amazing people in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, we're gonna invite you to take communion together. These elements are off to the side of the stage up here or in the back of the room as well, whichever is easier for you to get to. You can grab these, the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you and the drink that represents his blood that was shed for you. Jesus calls us to remember him whenever we eat and drink. And we're gonna invite you to that time because I think it's key, it's, it's crucial for you to remember him and all that that means for me and you. And today, especially, you might need some prayer. There'll be prayer partners up here at the table over here that would love to pray for you, pray with you. Maybe you do it when you come down to grab your elements, and maybe it's just during the last song here. But if you're carrying a burden today and you want to be prayed for, then you, you head this direction. So people would love to bear that with you. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we take this time to remember his love and the fact that he's with us right now as our sympathetic high priest. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.